Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I have a bunch of episodes in the queue, but I bumped this one up a little bit. I thought it was especially relevant to the time of year we're talking about New Year's resolutions, building habits, maintaining habits, that sort of thing. And uh, it's a good time for it because a lot of us already kind of fallen apart on our New Year's resolutions and probably re-examining things. I'm speaking for myself. I, I had, I shared with you guys my New Year's resolution to make the episodes come out on Monday each day. I've already been with this crazy tour. I've already been missing that a few times. So that, it's definitely the goal for the year. I I want to have a new episode out every Monday. Uh, the other thing that I, that I had was I wanted to quit doing coffee. I haven't been doing that or only drinking coffee when I need it. And then my other thing I've been sticking with is no candy, no soda. I I haven't had candy or soda. I've been sticking with that. But uh, man, this is that time of year where that seasonal depression starts setting in a little bit for many of us, certainly for me. So I haven't had a big bout of depression since last March. I have never gone on such a a streak like this. So it was uh, the the other shoe is going to drop eventually. Is that I'm not sure I'm using that expression correctly, but I think that maybe I am. And uh, it, it's starting to. I'm not getting the full depression. I I'm not totally knocked out. I think because of this tour just has me on the move, and I'm I'm better when I'm on the move. And uh, but it's the tour's been really nerve wracking. It's been great. It's been fun. But I'm also in the Midwest in January, and there's been a couple, a couple of uh, weather issues that really hindered shows, and there's probably going to be a couple more. And I'm investing so much in this show, I'm kind of gambling my life on it, and so maybe that's a little bit of a factor. I think uh, the big thing is I just fell out of exercising. I just starting at the end of uh, the end of November, I just kind of had fallen out of exercising and it's really just catching up with me. I got to get back on it. Man, that makes all the the world a difference. It's just been a thing that I've never really been able to consistently make a part of my life. And when I do, when I am getting that cardio in, when I am staying active, man, what a difference that makes just in terms of clarity and everything else. And, you know, I'm trying to do this podcast to talk with all these smart people about about their work that they're experts on, and I I need all of the uh, all the extra little bit of of cognitive energy and attention and everything else that I have. I really got to get back on the exercise train. So I don't know. I thought maybe this episode might inspire some of us or or help and inform us a little bit. Uh, so uh, let me know what you think. I thought it was a fantastic episode. I I hope you guys are having a good new year and and uh you know not beating yourselves up too much if you if you have slipped on some of those goals that you had and maybe this will be a, a good another little restart uh that's what I, I think we need multiple restarts throughout the year and not just new year's so maybe this episode will be one that inspires you to maybe uh get back to building some of those habits, setting some of those goals that you want to do and, and give you a better sense of how to do that. So enjoy today's episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are.
Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I'm talking with Professor of Health Ed and Health Promotion at the University of Wisconsin La Crosse here in my hometown. Talking with Keely Reese is joining me today. Keely, thank you for joining the show and having a cool name. You're my first Keely. <laughs> awesome. Like in life, not really? on this podcast. I I don't think I've ever met a Keely before. That's, so that's even this that is makes it even cooler. Exciting day for it me. It is. It is. Uh, and you're joining me on Stand Up Science sold out show tonight at yes. the Cavalier Theater. And uh, here we are at UWL, the school that rejected my application. <laughs> I was a terrible student and I, I, I wanted to be a comedian anyway. So I, I'm, awesome. I'm glad that that happened. Um, and I'm making up for it now. Here's Good. my UWL Good. education. Um, so you, you, uh, you study, you teach about health. I've heard of it. I hear it's an important <laughs> thing. I'm 38 now. I've lived an exceptionally unhealthy life and, uh, and just, you know, starting around my early to mid thirties, uh, my early thirties, I started thinking about living healthier yes. and like kind of thought about it for a few years <laughs> yeah. and then started trying to put some of this stuff into action Excellent. in my mid thirties. And it's a continuing process. And the nice thing is, is it like, you know, we're, we're recording this just after New Year's. I don't know when this is coming out, but uh, making the New Year's resolutions, it's, it's pretty easy for me to pick like a small thing and make a little incremental improvement because uh, I'm kind of starting from almost nothing. So, <laughs> so um, there's nowhere to go but up for me. Exactly. Um, so why don't you tell the listeners uh, a little bit about what you do? Because health education and promotion, that's that's a big thing. Exactly. That's, that's covering a lot. It is. Yep. Well, thanks for having me, and I'm very excited to be here and to be your first Keeley. That's awesome. <laughs> that even makes it even better. So health education, health promotion, um, that's our department. And health education is... It's a broad field, and it's it's really a field that a lot of people don't know a lot about it. And so we're under the umbrella of public health. And public health is – yeah. so that's why I, I, our whole department teaches. We prepare students to go out into the field and work in public health education. And we work in a variety of settings to include hospitals and clinics, nonprofit agencies – uh, schools, universities, government agencies, so local, state, and federal government, like the Center for Disease Control, all the way to your local health department. And our work is preparing them in a very specific skill set. So we have what we refer to as the seven areas of responsibilities. And so we are preparing our um, workforce how to assess population health how to implement programs, services, and resources for the population, whether it's at a hospital or a clinic or a school. We evaluate those programs and resources and services. Um, and, then, and then the other areas are around advocacy, communication, administration. So the research that we do and the, the preparation programs that we are in across the nation, and we're just one of many public health programs um, in the state and in the nation, we were one of the first um, undergrad programs. So we, we love that in the state. There's a few more now. Um, we have a master's of public health and we have a master's of um, public health and community health education. 
And our whole role is to really give the workforce the tools and the skill set on how to work with the population on a variety of health issues. So the settings in which we work are the ones that I named, but then the topics are very diverse and the population that we work with are very diverse. So um, as I was saying a little bit when we before we got started, we're kind of Jack and Jill's of a lot of trades and topics in health. And so some of us might spend our entire career in one area of health, like tobacco or substances or alcohol, tobacco and other substances. And then others of us have spent maybe five or 10 years in key areas. And then we've kind of moved into different populations or topic areas as well. And that's a little bit of me. I've not stayed with one thing for the last 20 years. Um, Other than maybe maternal and child health, that's one of my major areas of focus is studying women, children, teens, infants, babies, and really looking at their health across lifespan. But I've expanded over the years to doing a lot more than just that. Um, Probably a good solid 10 years, I worked in tobacco um, in Illinois and then when I first moved here. And then it's not that, I, that I've ever left it completely. It's just that I've you know expanded the things that I've studied or researched um, to include other either populations or topics. I've spent probably the majority of my, like I said, working with maternal and child health, so mothers and children and, and teens um, from the time I got my PhD. Um, I'm fascinated by youth and teens and just their behaviors. Um, but I've also worked with adults as well. So Wait, what's what's fascinating about teens? Mo- yeah. uh, most people are just um, annoyed by teens. Annoyed or they're, scared? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but you're fascinated. I'm fascinated. By them. Um, even before I had teens, and I have two teens. I have a 16 year old and a 13. Well, she'll be 13 tomorrow. Shout out to my daughter Harper. She was born on my birthday tomorrow. She Happy um, will be officially a teen tomorrow. But I. So, and that was my my research that started when I was in um, University of New Mexico getting my PhD, but really studying adolescence. And I think it's such a time where, like you said, most people are very annoyed by them um, or very fearful. Um, I think they're a population that has been misunderstood for decades. And it's just because they are going through so many changes physiologically, hormonally, you know, mentally, emotionally. And then when you spe- when you really spend time with them, and I, and I think it expands for me too. I've been in the university world now for twenty years. They're just an expansion of teens. They're just their frontal lobes are a little more developed, and they're not living under the roof with their parents. But really, they're still figuring out who they are. And there's nothing more satisfying than watching our students really kind of find their find themselves, find their passion find, and particularly in public health, that's I love helping them find what they're interested in health education. But when we're studying adolescents, I just think that there's such a wide spectrum of behaviors as well as just their attitudes and norms. And that's one of the things I very first started studying was just their... So when I was in New Mexico, I studied adolescents who were in alternative high schools. And the perception was always that if if youth were in alternative high schools, they had to have been some of the worst behaving youth to be there at these alternative schools. And so, and health behavior wise, they probably were engaging in some of the higher risk behaviors. And my work in New Mexico was really around this idea that they didn't then have the ability to think in the future. And our research really kind of proved it wrong. And really these youth that were 
considered to be the most at risk, engaging in high risk behaviors, were some of the most futuristic thinking students out there. Their orientations well, were you. such that yeah, <laughs> that they were able to really think beyond like the immediate now. And I think, yeah. um, and they get a bad rap. And and of course, as teens, we've all engaged in really risky behaviors or mm-hmm. i or ideas or, and that's I think what our you know, we're really good about hearing those things in the media. I think, I think our older population, you know, is darn, fearf- kids, darn these kids these days. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say that. My and being home with family, um, I have all my nieces and nephews too are all pretty much teenagers, and I don't know. There's just something too about. I was never fearful of this parent of this stage of parenting either. And mm. whereas a lot of people, when we had younger kids, they were very fearful of like, oh, I'm dreading the teen years and. I didn't, I didn't really ever dread it. And maybe it's because doing the research, I've seen so much of the positive sides of mm-hmm. working with youth. Hmm. We have a couple of new programs. And I, and so a lot of our students are engaged in youth programs. And the research that we're doing locally is usually engaging you know, young people. So... Yeah, it's funny how, because uh, I, I like to think that I don't fit into any mold, <laughs> yeah. uh, but, yep. but I, I was a, a real um, kind of troublemaker, rebellious young man, but I was also a futurist. I was mm-hmm. like, I, I've been a transhumanist, or or I'm not sure that I am anymore, but I but I was very much into, I want to be a cyborg. I yep. want to like <laughs> upload my consciousness onto a computer. I was learning about that stuff yep. and researching it from right around that same age yep. that I was also running around causing uh, causing all sorts of trouble. So that's awesome. interesting to hear that uh, yep. that research. When you talk about it like that, it is such a fascinating, there is no greater transition in our lifespan mm-hmm. than puberty, really, mm-hmm. in terms of like uh, most everything else is this kind of gradual right change maybe a midlife crisis sort of but we don't even it's hard to even identify what and when a midlife crisis is in in most cases first puberty is this jarring it's like a punctuated equilibrium or something of of uh of lifespan development and uh i i I, I think it's it's no wonder that there's a a little bit of confusion yep. in there when you're when you're going through that and your brain's going through so many changes so rapidly and yep. uh, which is then changing your social situations and changing your relationships with your family and yep. everything else around you too. Absolutely, they have it. They they really do have it coming from every every level the community to there. And so part of public health, we talk about a lot of, we use a lot of models and a lot of theories to understand the work that we do and the research that we do. And so there's this um, sociological, uh, social ecological model that helps us understand behaviors of all humans. But when you apply it to teens, it really helps you look at it from what they're doing on an individual level to what's kind of happening around them in their social circle to what's available to them in their community, and that could include their schools, but just other things happening in the environment in which they grow up, to the policies that even affect them in their community, laws, and how those are enforced in different communities. And so it's really fascinating to kind of study adolescents and their behavior, or anything too, any age population, and just from that from the models that we use in public health to really just understand the why. And that's that's really at the gist of what a lot of my research has been around is understanding the why. Um, and that's what a lot of our theories help us 
do or under, understand human behavior better and then apply a lot of what we do then in public health is we figure out, okay, there's this issue or this problem, just, you know, maybe it's teens and smoking or teens and risky sexual behaviors or distracted driving, whatever it might be. And then we, in public health, then it's not just figuring out what is happening. We go beyond that. And then we're helping put in measures in a community or in a state or in a nation with policies and law. So that's my other big, probably in the last you know, 10, 15 years, that's been my biggest area of research is understanding how to prepare our workforce to doing that work, the policy work and the advocacy work necessary to help hit a broader um, range of people. Um, when I started out my in my career, I was really working with people on a one-on-one basis, really individually helping people change behaviors. And my background is exercise physiology and health behavior, along with health education, community health. But then as I've grown into the profession too, I, I really, you know, we really can see a greater impact of change happen when we can put into place policies and laws that affect a greater portion of the population. So where a lot of my students are going to go out and they are going to work one-on-one with a client in a hospital setting, a, a worksite wellness setting. They're going to do that one-on-one work of changing a health behavior, drinking more water, you know, eating better, sleeping better, whatever it is. And then there's others that work in our in our field that are going to really work on that more community level or that um, state or federal level and creating better um, what we call built environments the concept of that our environment around us, how conducive is it to improving our health? So if we want people to be more physically active, but they don't live in an area where they can be outside safely, that isn't a conducive built environment. We've not, you know, there might not be sidewalks, there might not be streetlights, there might not be, um, it might not be safe for a variety of reasons. So people don't engage in outside activity or move their bodies outside. So in public health, that's what we kind of come in and do is we're doing assessments of those communities to figure out how do we make this a safer biking community or walking community. or And so then you're affecting more than just that one person. You're kind of affecting a whole community. So that's a little bit of back, more backstory of like how public health affects from the individual level all the way up to the policy mm. level. So you're in Wisconsin. So how do you get rid of winter so that people? <laughs> I, I mean, what do you? Because I was thinking during uh, for as I was like thinking of a New Year's resolution, I was like, well, because I I go in and out of jogging and getting cardio mm-hmm. stuff, and I always feel at my best when I'm getting regular cardio. And so I was like, that would be a good New Year's resolution to do cardio three times a week. And, uh, and reasonable, it's not that crazy of a of a goal. And I just was looking outside, and I was like, "There's no way I'm gonna start this behavior in Wisconsin in the freezing cold." And my in my excuse machine got a really yeah a really good workout. Yeah, <laughs> we have a built-in good machine mechanism that does that. Yeah, well, I. How do you get people started uh, in a time in a time like this <laughs> right? in, in the January? Midwest? Well, in in lacrosse, well, we have a lot of indoor gyms. Yeah, <laughs> we have a lot of you know workplace spaces that have conducive um, indoor spaces. But then I think 
I think a lot of Wisconsinites, um, you know, and anywhere in the Midwest, I think there's just this, you either do not engage in outdoor weather or you are uh, put on the layers. And I mean, even this morning down by the river, there were a lot of runners down by the river. I think they just, you appropriately, you know, there's the old saying about there's never really... bad enough weather to be outside. It's just that we have bad clothing or, you know, not appropriate clothing. And I think that's partly true too. However, there are individuals that are just never going to adapt to and embrace snowshoeing or skiing or, you know, and and then we we do, we have to accommodate their sort of um, needs and we build really great indoor facilities and we're lucky in lacrosse. We have really good whys. Why and you know the two whys in in on Alaska and Lacrosse, um, and then we have so many other wellness centers and fitness centers in between. So I think that's right now they're just bulging at the seams with new people that have signed up for classes and yeah. Yeah, I watched the I. This is the first year in ages that I've watched the New Year's celebration stuff on TV, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a nice reminder why I don't watch that. Um, it's a bunch of music that I. Uh, it just makes me upset. Um, and, uh, but all of the ads are for like gym memberships and that sort of thing. So it's, I think we almost need like, um, uh, something like a new year's eve holiday every three months like at the start of every season or something like that this is the winter solstice kind of time, but we, we need something we need to like re, uh, uh, reevaluate those intentions mm-hmm. every few months rather than because people mm-hmm. do a good job for mm-hmm. like a month or two mm-hmm. and then they kind of yep let things fall apart that's that was my very first start in research was studying the adherence to exercise so uh, you know, for someone who is adhering to exercise, that's what we consider someone who's been exercising for more than six months. Um, oh man, <laughs> yeah. I've never adhered to exercise. Right. So we know that when someone starts to exercise, I've newly, never adhered to anything. <laughs> You're a contemplator. Anything positive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so to get someone to stay in that adherence mode or what we consider stay in sort of um, maintenance or action phases. We know that in January, a lot of people will start it and they will be done by February or March. It takes, you know, a good minimum 30 days. I mean, depending on what behavior you're studying, you know, there's a there's a really good rhythm. I mean, there's some research that says seven days to start a new habit. Someday, when we look at food behaviors, we know it takes 14 exposures to a new food for a kid to like a new food. So, mm. and we know with exercise that the the good solid part of it or any behavior that you're stopping or starting, it, it takes longer than that first month. And so if we can get people past, you know, the first 90 days. So a lot of times in Um, good health education programming, we do things through 12 weeks, 12 weeks, eight weeks, six weeks is usually the minimum that we recommend that people kind of get started on something because after six weeks, usually people are kind of in a good rhythm and in a good habit. But um, if anything happens during those first six weeks um, to deter them from that, that's where we see the drop off. That's why in February, you know, mid-February, you'll see the fitness centers and gyms and stuff. They'll see like this drop off. Mm-hmm. They usually say about 50%. Um, I've seen higher numbers than that. But yeah, and I, I think that's, I think you're right. I think there is something to that. And there is there is really good research that shows that, you know, and 
thinking about 90-day increments, we really should have a, a, a new New Year's every mm-hmm. quarter. I mean, when you think of businesses, they have quarters. They have... You know, quarter, and when we think of re, you know reporting processes, we have quarterly reports or in you know biannual at least, um, so at least two times a year where you might be able to reset. But yeah, it's it's yeah, everyone kind of waits to like oh I'll I'll start everything over on the new year, and I think that's kind of the mentality that we yeah. we work really hard to help people work uh, you know not think of it as an all or nothing, but that you have many chances to kind of reset throughout the year throughout the. I mean, the downside of it is leading up to that New Year's, like people really let themselves go. When I say people, I'm talking about myself. (laughs) Um, Because then it's like, well, New Year, new me. So right now I'm going to eat whatever I want to and not do any of the uh, things that I'm supposed to do. Um, So when when you talked about, um, uh, first off, Oh man, I, I feel like we might not even get to half of the things that uh, that you do um, because I have so many questions. One, um, I'll start with this because you mentioned youth programs mm-hmm. for teens, and I'm uh, I'm putting myself in my uh, in Teen Shane's place right now, and in the words youth programs, mm-hmm. I'm just like whatever, lady, I'm out of here. <laughs> like that's that's not something that would have. Just the words "youth programs" would have scared me off. But what kind of youth programs sure. are you doing? Which ones are are? Uh, what youth programs are the most successful? Yeah, and it 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 really kind of depends. The one that I've been working with for probably since two thousand seven, so eight in this region is a human sexuality program. So um, I actually teach human sexuality to middle school and high school youth in church basements and it's called our whole lives and it's a comprehensive sex education program so youth uh, it's it's <laughs> w-h-o-l-e <laughs> I, I imagine yeah uh, uh, yeah uh, i'm just making yeah, an yeah. awful <laughs> joke <laughs> yeah. uh, okay Pull so on. yep yep <laughs> so church basement church basement um it's a uh, and it's usually a year-long or nine-month-long pro, um, pro, uh, program. A lot of them are not signing up themselves as much as their parents are like, you're doing this. Um, so yeah. they come, and they're usually very reticent about it. Um, That's a good word. They're very like, oh, my gosh, why are we here? Yeah. Um, they're usually, And it's usually non-denominational, so it's, it's kids from many different faiths. Um, but it's held in our um, the, Uni- the United Church of um, Christ and the Universal Unitarians, um, the UUAs, are the two that have created this curriculum. It's a nationwide curriculum. Um, it's developed by health educators and um, medical practitioners. So and you then, say, hey, teenagers. Yeah, hey, teenagers. We're going to gather you together in a yep. church basement. And talk about sex. To have adults talk to you about sex. Yep. And, and and that's what I what a teenager probably hears is why they shouldn't ever have sex. Yeah, yep. exactly. And so they're usually like, Heck no, no way, not coming. And then we kind of hook them in the first couple sessions. And um, a lot of it's peer-led, too. So they're, I mean, it's very discussion-based. And once they're through the first two sessions, they're like, oh, my gosh, this is not what we thought it's going to be about. And um, they are, 
And that's, again, probably where I've done a lot of my research with youth as well as, and we've collected in data and looked at like the outcomes of youth that have had comprehensive sex ed in this type of programming versus maybe sex education through their health classes at school. Um, we're pretty lucky in this region too. We have really good health education in most of our high schools and middle schools. Um, they, actually, a lot of the graduates come from this program, so I'm kind of biased on that, but um, it's still a topic that parents really would prefer not talking about with their own child. So a lot of, and we'll maybe have 15 or 20 in a class, and there's usually two or three facilitators, males, females, and then we often have some of our college students help teach it as well. So again, there's a little bit less of like, oh, this 45-year-old woman talking mm-hmm. to you versus like, here's this awesome 20-year-old that's coming in and and telling sort of their parts to it. And then it's a year long and it's usually every Sunday, um, every other Sunday, or sometimes we do them in weekends and it's very comprehensive. So we're, ta- we're telling them about every part of sex, not just what a lot of youth end up learning about sex is don't do it. It's bad, and it leads to only things like death and disease. And so they they grow up very fearful and very scared of it. This last year, Ryan McKelly and I led a project on our campus because in our region, we've had a really um, significant spike in sexually transmitted diseases, again, particularly chlamydia and gonorrhea. And That's so, my hometown. Yep. Hometown Woo. proud. And so, and we are not unlike many other communities in the state or the nation. We've kind of seen a spike nationwide, but in La Crosse, we really wanted to figure out like what's going on. And when I work with these youth, they're very, they're very open and telling about what, why they think it's a problem. Um, so it's, it's kind of almost like running a mini focus group every Sunday with them because they are just, they are so willing to, when you establish the trust and the, uh, um, the OWL program is um, facilitated in a way that you don't just dive in and you're talking about the hard topics on day one. You you really move into it appropriately and build trust and allow them to feel safe talking about these kinds of things. But by the time the class is over, they're not even embarrassed asking questions. They just, we have this little anonymous Q&A box and in the beginning they all use it and they write down an anonymous question or they write down, I don't have a question. And by the end, they're just all in a circle asking very open questions about their, bo- I mean, about their friends' bodies or their right, you know right. relationships or whatever. But they're very articulate and I think that's one really good example of a youth program that um, in many communities has been very successful. And you're able to not just, you're not just talking about sex. You're not, it's very little of it is actually about the physical act of intercourse or um, the physical physicality of it. It's a lot about relationships, um, intimacy, trust. Um, her, I mean, all, all of the comprehensive things that we really put into a program about sexuality. And so in its birth to death. So the premise is that we are sexual from the time we're born to the time we die. And that blows our minds when we're talking to them about their parents or their grandparents. And they're like, what? They're sexual? And they're, they're very, it's really exciting to, to watch them question it and have, you know, really thoughtful discussions about it. And sometimes they're not thoughtful and it's very goofy and it's very, you know, they're off. I mean, whether you're working with middle school youth or if you're working with high schoolers, you're having very different conversations. And then in this program, it goes all the way down to little kids, too. So K through 
it's K through six too. So sometimes you're talking to preschoolers. And again, very age appropriate, medically accurate information that's appropriate for a first grader to know versus what we're talking to 18 year olds about. It's really different. So, of course. Today's Cognitive Break is brought to you by Stitch Fix. Stitch Fix is an online personal styling service that finds and delivers clothes, shoes, and accessories to fit your body, budget, and lifestyle. Check out how it works. Just go to stitchfix.com slash here we are. And what you do, you plug in all sorts of the future is amazing. You tell them your size, what styles you like, how much you want to spend on each item. They walk you through different like fitting things, what colors you're opposed to, which colors you like the most. It's a a fun process, even just signing up and going through all of that and kind of rediscovering your own taste. And then you'll be paired with your very own personal stylist who handpicks five items to send right to your door. Then you try them on, pay only for what you love, and return the rest. Shipping, exchanges, and returns are always free. There's no subscription required. You can sign up and receive scheduled shipments and get your your fix whenever you want. Stitch Fix's styling fee is only $20, which is applied toward anything you keep from your shipment. Only $20, guys. Guys, I have a slightly better sense of style than I used to, and that's because I've gone through relationships and bickered with the person that I care about. First off, do you know how expensive relationships are? Do you know how expensive breakups are? All these things to slowly, and then I went through awkward phases, like in one relationship, the person I was with really wanted to doll me up just way more than I was comfortable with, and and that was an ongoing thing, and it's took forever to just now, finally, as a 38-year-old man, I get some compliments on how I'm dressed and how I look these days. I figured it out along the way. I, I know some pieces. I know when a piece looks good, I sort of am figuring out how to get things that are fitted well. And and then the last piece I'm still lost on, mixing it all together. Sometimes I knock it out of the park, other, other times I have no idea. But for $20, they're doing all of this work for you. And there's even a setting uh, that allows you to be more adventurous or less adventurous. Sometimes you know exactly what you want. Sometimes maybe you want to try something new. There's all, all these settings that allow you to do that. So... Get started now at stitchfix.com slash here we are and you'll get an extra 25% off when you keep all of your five items. And that's stitchfix.com slash here we are to get started today. Stitchfix.com slash here we are. You know, and then I think a lot of the other things that we have in lacrosse that I think many communities do too, but I think we have growing um, organizations that are helping youth with um, mental health. And and it might not be that, again, a kid is signing up like, hey, I'm coming to learn about my mental and emotional health, but it's more that we have these places and these safe spaces for them to be and engaging in other things. Um, so one of our really successful places are, is our teen center at the YMCA. And again, it's more of a safe space for them to come engage in all kinds of activities and hang out after school and weekends and get help with homework. But then also they're learning life skills and there are health educators and other um, behavioral behavioral health specialists that are addressing their needs. And through that, that we're kind of getting in the back door, if you will, through, you know, just having them engage in maybe cooking or 
again, homework or they have a, there's a giant music aspect to it and music room and, you know, just learning life skills. And then backdoor, it's like also having conversations about their health, mental health, physical health, and then they have access to the YMCA so they can engage in other things. So like I see a lot of good things that are happening in that and they do outreach the workers at the teen center then are also doing outreach at the high schools. And so they're also spending a day here and there at all the area high schools, connecting with youth and just making a safe space at the school as well as, okay, you can come to the teen center, but here's this um, other place for them to kind of be connected with. So those would be two examples off the top of my head I can think of. So why are STIs increasing in the cross? (sighs) One of the biggest reasons is the decrease use in barrier methods. So barrier methods being condoms, particularly. We've seen in the last five years um, a decrease of use of them. So and no matter and it, it's across the board, whether it's a heterosexual homosexual relationship, it's just the lack of use of condoms. Mm-hmm. So when we really started digging into this research um, and we, there's a group, um, including the La Crosse County Health Department, Essential Health Clinic, um, and then us here at the university. We really tackled it from, okay, what's going on? And we, we really stuck looking at 18 to 25-year-olds because easier access to study them and they're without parental consent. They can consent for themselves as adults. It really kind of came down to that the same reasons that probably – 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when we've seen other spikes in STDs across the nation, the the lack of use and not necessarily the lack of knowledge, like they know about sexually transmitted diseases. So there's not a knowledge gap. It's a behavioral using the condom in the moment. And that's what we've really kind of uncovered is that, and that's due to a variety of reasons. And a lot of what we learned this last year is the lack of um, access to the condom in the moment. So I know I should use a condom. I don't have one right now. And now there is very limited places to get them at whatever hour, Mm -hmm. 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock on campus, if it's during the day on a college campus, you have a easy access of places to getting them free. Our wellness center, our healthcare center, you know, they can walk in and get them in free. They sit out in big bowls, um, many campuses across the nation. And then we know part of this is also, it, this is also a spike in 15 to 18 year olds. So now we're talking teens, where do they have access to getting condoms? Um, so if they're not buying them, if they don't have access to buying them, only until recently, a couple of our local grocery stores were not carrying them. They are now carrying them at the grocery stores. So in, in part of our research, we've kind of learned about, you know, they don't, not thinking ahead to having them and then not using them. So when I'm not using them, there increases the spike. Um, we're a pretty, you know, heavy 18 to 25 year old population in this region because we have three universities here. So we have a significant population in that age group. Um, and then the ones that are not in a college campus, you know, then it, then we know it has a little bit more to do with lack of maybe information or knowledge. Where do they learn about sexually transmitted infections and diseases. So some of them didn't learn about it, or if they did, it it didn't apply to them when they learned about it in high school or middle school health. Um, And now again, I'm in this relationship. Um, Some of my early, early research when I was in Illinois, we looked at um, students' behaviors and young people's behaviors, and there's what we call illusionary 
illusionary protective factors. And what they are is I'm going to look at you and assume that you are a healthy person. Mm-hmm. I'm going to look at your genitalia and I don't see anything. You mm-hmm. must be healthy. And so there's these kind of what we refer to them as illusionary practices that students, uh, young and, and adult, young adults engage in. Some of those are even, oh, I know you. I know you're from Alaska. You're a good person. I know your family. Um, you're not going to have a disease. Yeah, good people don't get us. Exactly, exactly. And so a lot of what we do in health education, too, is helping break down the barrier and the stigma around them and thinking of a sexually transmitted infection much like you would a common cold, a you know, and, and that's a hard thing to do because it's tied in with sexuality, which has all the other taboo topics that people are uncomfortable talking about. So when you really think about what an STI is, it's an infection or, a ba- you know, it's a bacteria or a virus that is spread much like the common cold, either contact, skin contact to contact um, or through a fluid. If you think about someone sneezing or coughing, it's not a lot different than if it was through vaginal or seminal fluid. But because it's sexual, it's very stigmatized. So people are very afraid to talk about it. They are maybe new in a relationship or it's a one-time relationship and they're like, I'm not going to have this conversation. So in our research, we also learned a lot from our, and we were particularly studying males this last year, and we really learned that this is just something they are not equipped to talk about in a new relationship or a one-time relationship, a, a hookup. Sort of, mm-hmm. we, we talk a lot about hookup, generate um, hookup, um, the hookup culture on campus and off campus, and they're not equipped to f- feel confident in having those conversations. And so that led to them also sharing a lot of stories about where they did or did not learn about sexuality and their sort of um, beliefs and attitudes about sexuality. And so it's just very telling. And they're very open, again, to talk about what they did or did not learn and how that's impacted their relationships. And Mm. yeah. How do you equip people to have those conversations? Asking for a friend. Yes, asking for a friend. Exactly. Oh man, that is that's a complex question. It is. Um, it is not easy. It's in our owl classes. It's a lot of. It's a lot of role playing with youth. It's a lot of having helping them figure out. And having them think through that conversation in their head of thinking through how would I bring this up to a person and having them almost in in our classes, health classes or in these church basements, we are having them role play it. So we actually have scripts for them and they're actually practicing saying the words out loud that that are already pre-scripted, but then are something that they can kind of modify and twist and, okay, how would I actually say this? And again, it's in the moment, it's hilarious to watch them do this because they're mortified and they're embarrassed, but they're in it together and there's something that's very, I don't know, something by the time we're in that far in the curriculum, there's something very sacred about it. And they're just, they they really overcome that fear of like, okay, this is something I can talk about. Or in our men's groups last year, when we were running these focus groups, just even by the time the focus group was done, watching 10 or eight men sit around a table being willing to have this very open conversation about sex and their relationships and their fears or expectations about it. Again, just breaking that barrier sometimes about it. So the the best way that we do that is helping them have a, a script and helping them think through it. Just like any other health behavior, it's almost just having a plan so that when you are in the moment, in the backseat, after the bar, whatever the scenario is, right, that they're not 
having to come up with a script under the influence or under, in that moment, and they've already pre-scripted in their head, here's how I would bring this up with a, with a new partner, a, a one-time partner, and how to like work through that. And it, it is not easy. And I mean, the, the mm. students that we interviewed this last year talked about how hard that is. They did not feel equipped to do that. They did not feel like they had that kind of education and knowledge. And every, almost one of them, thematically through our research said, we wish we would have had a class before we got to college that really had us do that, or when we got here to college, um, that we were all required to take. Not just some of us that elected to take that health course that talked about that, but that we were all required so that we were all sort of in the same playing field. So so everyone else is is not getting It's awkward, exactly. And having awkward conversations. It seems like that's a... That that could potentially um, be reframed as an attractive quality if someone is very mindful about yep. having safe sex. Yep. Uh, you would you would think a potential partner would be more interested in having sex with someone yep. who um, shows signs of of yep. responsibility. Yep, absolutely. So and maybe work it into the pickup line. Exactly. Right. And I actually had a group of students that talked about that this last year. They said it would just be so great if we could, you know, and they're health education students. So they're they're already kind of at the top of the curve of their innovators. They're already adopting these ideas. They're they're the ones that are going to go out and have to really help do this work. And so as a group, they're kind of a unique group that really care about these things. And they, within their peer group, it is very cool and kind of glamorous and sexy to talk about these things. And it it is sort of a badge of honor. And one of them even said, oh, I just wish we had a badge we could flash and make it super easy and just be like, here's my card. I'm clean. And and it could just be something that, you know, you pop out at the bar or in an encounter and that you were kind of required to every six months get tested and and I was like, you're on to something. And it was kind of a cool idea. One of my um, health educators, Sam, had. I was like, that's a really great idea. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it would be nice to have some sort of certification. Yeah. So, so you knew. Like I mean, the, the problem or, or the problem with having, because it would be nice to have even just tests for people in the moment, but then people yeah. would be maybe less inclined to have right. safe sex. And, right. and you don't want to just like, be drunk on a Tuesday without any social support and find out that you have some uh, disease. Whoops. Yep. yep. Um, yeah. So. so we do a lot of, and that's actually what we do in the community too. And across the nation, health educators, they're called um, bar blitzes, but, or they have different names in different cities, but I've done them in St. Louis. I've done them in um, Albuquerque and we do them here in La Crosse and we train health educators. And that's where we partner with essential health clinic or our wellness center, and they actually go into the bars between like 8 and usually closer to 1 or 2 a.m., and they're handing out kits of condoms, lubrication, and then a testing information about where you can get free testing. Mm-hmm. And they're doing five-minute or less little spiels with a person in a bar or in the bathrooms or wherever outside the bar walking on 3rd Street or 2nd Street, wherever. Yeah. So you just saddle up next to a guy at a urinal yep. and just start that. <laughs> I know normally we don't make eye contact here, but I have a little <laughs> have spiel a for, for you. you. 
yeah. Yeah. Well, we try not to follow them into the urinals, but we do put our materials in the bathrooms. Um, sure. And we work with the tavern leagues and we work at the taverns and, and Essential Health Clinic has done really, has really taken this over and done a great job. And then our health educators just get trained and talk about awkward conversations and, um, usually they're dressed in t-shirts and kind of people get used to them on Thursday nights or Friday nights. And, and it's a nationwide thing. It's, it's been very successful um, all the way to having the conversations in some communities. It might be more like at the barbershop or at the um, hairdressers in Iowa. That's a huge program. The hairdressers are trained to talk to their clients about sexually transmitted infections. Really? Yeah. Oh, I do not like, <laughs> I don't I don't want my barber talking to me at all. Right. <laughs> uh, my move is I close my eyes, eyes. right yep. away yep. so they know. Yep. Well, and, and usually... But if someone just started... <laughs> talking to you, usually it's like I, established... I picture them like whispering it yeah, to me kinda. too. And the barbers, the barbershops like in Minneapolis and some of the other bigger cities too, it's, it's again, it's kind of like an established relationship that they have with them. Right. So it barbershops might be, supposed to be more yeah. of this communal yep. kind of exactly. like everyone's, everyone's hanging out, yeah, hanging out and yep. have, have cracking jokes yep. and that sort of thing. And then a lot of times it starts with that they have information there and... Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a really great way to kind of break the ice with different populations um, that you might not easily have had access to. For women, particularly, we've we've used um, utilized like salons and hairdressers because again, a woman will be in a chair for a long time, and sometimes they tell their hairdresser a lot more than they tell their, mm-hmm. you know, uh, doctor or their um, partners. Yeah. And so we've learned that they're a really good um, lay health educator that can help us kind of figure out like what's going on in a community or population. So there's been, it's been really good research to be able to track and figure out how it's helped over the years. And sometimes it's more about like pregnancy prevention or it's a variety of topics, not just always sexuality stuff. So, Hmm. so I'm going to shift gears a little bit. You research um, uh, motivational interviewing and teach motivational interviewing. So my girlfriend's always telling it was she took some motivational interviewing course in college that changed her life or something. And she's always telling me I got to look into this motivational interviewing yeah. stuff. So what is motivational interviewing? Yeah, actually, it, yeah, it's a really cool tool. Um, it's a communication tool that it's so it's a skill. It's a very specific communication skill that we teach health practitioners, so counselors, health educators, um, ATOD, alcohol, tobacco, and other drug, um, substance abuse counselors. So a variety of helping professions all the way to, we've been seeing it really helpful with um, even teachers and parents um, over the years too. So it's not, it's, it's spreading as a way to communicate. So the definition of motivational interviewing is it's a communication tool that helps find the underlying motivation of a client. So a client, a patient, if you're in a hospital or clinical setting, what is their motivation for um, adhering to their um, diabetes regimen? So taking their medication, exercising, taking care of their diet. Um, instead of me telling them, as their health educator or their doctor or their counselor, this is what you should do. We approach it from a perspective of where are you at in wanting to change whatever X behavior. So if it's exercise, nutrition, smoking, you know, um, and again, it's been studied across a variety of health behaviors. It helps us draw out 
the client's motivation for why they want to change it. And sometimes when you start interviewing them, so the motivational interviewing, you're interviewing them with a set of open-ended questions to get them to open up and talk about X. Let's just pick on exercise. If, if you wanted to start exercising, we would ask the client, you know, tell me more about that. Um, you know, what what is exciting you about starting exercise? And so open-ended questions that lead to us not telling basically the client or patient what to do, but instead the client coming up with their own plan and their own idea for changing that behavior. So through the conversation, it might be sometimes as a health um, educator, we might have 15 minutes with the client. Or sometimes you might have an hour with a patient. If you again, if you're in a counseling session, or depending on the setting. Um, so if you have ten or fifteen minutes, sometimes these are done telephonically. So you're talking to a client and patient. You're you're doing more like a coaching um, follow up with them. Again, it's it's less because the basic bottom line about behavior change we know is that it's up to the individual and how badly they want to change that behavior. So we might know that smoking is really something that is not the best for anyone. But for me to tell that person that they already know the 101 reasons they shouldn't smoke. They are, they are better experts than their physician probably and or the health educator or their partner about why they shouldn't smoke. So telling that person you shouldn't smoke doesn't actually make them want to stop smoking even more. So we find with motivational interviewing ways to get at what are their motivations and what do they need to be supported in making those behavior changes? And so through that dialogue and that process, that skill, we're able to sort of elicit that with a patient or a client. And it's sort of this little dance that you do with them. And um, instead of trying to write them into like, this is why you need to stop smoking. This is why you must exercise they come up with their own list of reasons why. And then ultimately, they may ask for advice or support or resources in doing that. And then that's where we can come in as a health practitioner and say, okay, here are some resources we do have now that you're asking me for those, but I'm not going to shove them down your throat. Mm -hmm. And Mm. in health education, our basic premise too is that in a community, you you can't coerce. We don't coerce people to change their behaviors. We can only provide all the options. So even like with sexuality education, it's like our premise is that we're going to provide all the information to you. And then it's your decision as to whether you're going to use contraception or barrier methods or abstain from sex or have a baby or not have a baby or whatever it is. Same thing with eating or exercise or any substances or anything too. It's We come from the perspective in public health that free will. It's the theory that we use. That's your decision ultimately to make of changing that behavior. And we might support that with, yep, we know these reasons, scientifically, research, that smoking is harmful. And here's the reasons why, if the client might ask for that. But again, a lot of times with behavior change, the client knows best what they need to do or why they want to do it which is one of the things when we look at like New Year's resolutions, why so many people tend to fail is a lot of times they're signing up for things that other people want them to do or other people have told them they need to do their doctor, their you know partners, their significant others, their, you know, all the other new year, new me, whatever list of all the things that people are told, okay, these are things you should do. Does the person really want to do that? And do they have the tools and the skills to do that? So that's what MI is. And then we study particularly in our department, we're looking at 
How helpful is it in a clinical perspective? So after a, a patient is done working with a physician, um, a lot of times they do need support. So you get you have a prescription by your doctor to lose weight or adhere to this medication or this um, regime after being diagnosed with X, Y, or Z. We often find that our patients need a lot more support. They can't. It's not a one and done. You get the diagnosis, but they need these support people. And it could be a team of nurses, health educators, physical therapists, whoever it might be. And so what we're doing with motivational interviewing is training a variety of those health professionals on how to have that communication skill set with those patients. So that, again, the patient's kind of empowered. It's, it's really an empowerment tool to empower the patient to kind of figure out their own like path of how they figure out that health issue. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. It's very, uh, it's not a panacea. It doesn't fix everything. We we talk about that a lot. It's not a, it's MIing someone doesn't. It's not gonna, you know, it isn't gonna change a person's behavior overnight. But it helps the person feel validated and heard when they're being spoken to. And so, it's kind of an underlying premise of a lot of how how a lot of therapists or how a lot of health practitioners probably do communicate with their patients. And we're just finding that it's a very helpful tool to have in your tool bag when you're working with the community. Hmm. Well, that's wonderful. Now I know. Yeah. It, it seems like it makes a lot of sense. And and yep. I am I'm someone who quit smoking cigarettes after a long time of smoking. And so I am I am the guy that likes to go around telling people Good. that they that they need to quit smoking, smoking, but yep. I guess that's the wrong approach. No. And, uh, I mean <laughs> It's good that I can be an example yeah. of someone who yeah. quit. That's um, that's a different but, approach. Yep. But yeah, I I have I have friends that I could probably um, back off on giving advice and just kind of get them to arrive at their own conclusions. Yeah, and a lot of what MI does is it allows you to just kind of come alongside your friends instead of being kind of like, oh, I've done it, and here's exactly how you should do it you kind of come alongside them in their journey of like, hey, you're smoking. I kind of heard that you want to stop smoking. Tell me more about that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in them telling you about that, you can, that's where you can slide in and say, okay, well, here's what worked for me or here's what I've, you know, tried and here's what's not worked. And because I do think there's valid, really, there's a lot of validity to a person sharing their story. I mean, that's how people feel less alone in changing their behaviors or, stopping or starting something is when they can see other, I mean, that's what motivates us when we see someone else that has done it and we're like, oh man, that person did that? Awesome. I can, you know, it, that's that's part of motivation. And so people, I think storytelling is really important um, and motivational interviewing allows us to kind of come alongside them and share our story if, if the door has kind of been open versus us coming over top of them and being like, pointing, it's, it's like less finger wagging and more like, Hey, I've done this. I'm, it's more in an empathetic, um, way of, um, I like to give the example when we teach motivational interviewing, we steal, um, Brene Brown's research of sympathy versus empathy. So instead of coming up here and looking down at you, be like, Oh yeah, you smoke. That sucks. Um, sorry that you smoke sucks to be you versus empathy is you're kind of down in the hole next to them going, yeah, it's really hard and it, it might it's going to get a lot harder before it gets easier or you're just right there with them versus trying to tell them, you know, just do it, do it this way, do it faster. Instead, you're just kind of right next to them, shoulder to shoulder saying, it's hard, it sucks and I failed twice and I'm back at it again. And so it's it's a lot of 
um, being on the same page with your patient versus being up here like, oh, I'm the doctor. I'm the health educator. I know more than you. I'm like right beside you and being like, hey. And that's hard because sometimes maybe our health educators don't have, they may not have had, and particularly like if we pick, if we stay with tobacco, if they've not been a tobacco user, that's, that's really hard for another health educator to help someone quit smoking if they've never quit themselves. Mm-hmm. So we're, we teach them to be very upfront about that and say to their patients, that was one of my first gigs <laughs> was teaching smoking um, cessation classes. And it was the hardest thing because my clients would say, whatever, you've never smoked. I'm like, yeah, you're right. I've never smoked. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it's like to have this physical desire every day. And so, but once they got through that, I wasn't going to beat them up for not, you know, getting through the class and failing, you know, once they realized that I was on the same page, but I was not trying to say, oh, I know what it's exactly like, you can empathize without having to had experienced it. And that's, that's a tricky thing. And so motivational interviewing helps us teach our practitioners how to go out and do that. And because a lot of the things that they'll work with in the field um, will be things that they don't have experience with struggling with and and then others will and that will make them I think even more empathetic um, health educator and we all have things that we can kind of translate it to might not be the same addiction or um, habit or I'm whatever the same way with cookies exactly exactly, <laughs> exactly. and yeah doesn't help the person feel better. <laughs> right, right. So we help them not say those non-helpful right, things right, right. with that skill set. Yeah. Well, it sounds like we just need to have our health educators start and then stop smoking and then yeah. they'll be on the same <laughs> be page. On the same page, right? Yeah, uh, here. here, this is part of your required <laughs> curriculum now. You have to smoke for a semester. No. <laughs> wait, so, wait. so I have my guests each week plug a nonprofit of their choice. Uh, what would you like to plug? Um, definitely um, Essential Health Clinic. Um, it is our amazing reproductive um, health center. They do a lot more than reproductive health here in La Crosse, and they have been serving the area for many years. I've been a huge advocate of them since I moved here. They now are partnered and aligned with Gunderson Health System and are servicing our not just La Crosse um, well, really the entire county, but the entire region and have satellite offices and really service not just a specific age range, but they really service an entire population of health needs and really with a centered focus on reproductive health, but also, um, you know, they're screening for a lot of other really important things like heart disease. And um, the practitioners there are incredibly empathetic, use MI and are in a space of non-judgment. So a a young teen can walk in there all the way to a woman in her 40s or 60s and receive healthcare and have access to services that they may not have access to or feel comfortable talking to their own physician with, or they may not have a physician. So it's a really important organization and we partner with them for a lot of things. And I have a lot of alumni that work there um, and a lot of good colleagues that serve on the board. So I'm just eternally grateful for what they do. Great. Um, so I'll I'll probably bump this up in line a little bit, um, just because we're talking about health. Just so it's still in there in January when it's on people's minds a lot. So by let's see, by the time people are listening to this, 
I'll take a guess at when this is coming out, maybe toward the end of January. So they've already failed a few of their things, perhaps. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe set the bar too high for themselves or mm -hmm. something. And uh, But that's no reason to give up on, mm -hmm. on health, especially this early in the year. So if people want to, for the people out there that are, are one, um, actually following their New Year's resolutions and want to stick with it and mm -hmm. sustain it, and two people that are already kind of giving up on mm -hmm. it, do you have any advice for those couple of groups? Absolutely. I think I think the biggest reason people fail is to to stick with it and 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 to even start it in the first place and and stick with it through the end of January all the way through maybe the even the first 90 days of the year um, is really identifying their why and the reasons that they want to change that behavior. So if they've chosen exercise, what is the underlying, why does that matter to them to do it or to not do it? And to really explore those options. Um, it's it's grounded in all of the theory that we use in, in health education and public health to understand when a person can really identify their why, um, and it has really intrinsic value to them, they're the ones that usually falter less. They usually they usually drop off less when they can identify and figure out what it is about exercise or um, eating more kale or drinking more water or getting better sleep, whatever it is, when they can really articulate the why and how it impacts their life. The fact that it is hindering them from doing something with their kids or their loved ones or being able to be, um, you know comfortable in their skin um, or living their best life, whatever it might be. Or, or again, they're, if it's sleep and they're just really sleep deprived and they're really getting at, okay, this is really having an impact on my um, health, um, heart, you know, blood pressure. Um, it's affecting my job. It's affecting my family, my kids. When they can articulate those things, we see a better outcome. So when, when we're in a session with a client and they can really articulate the motivations for changing that behavior, the underlying reasons why they seem to be able to overcome the barriers like the weather mm. or oh, I'm too tired today to go to the gym or whatever. They can, they have better um, mechanisms to kind of bounce back from some of those barriers or those, the reasons that they will come up with in their head to not do the behavior or to, you know, if, it, if it's something they're trying to stop doing. And the other thing that I would say along with the why is, and this has been a thread through all of my research, whatever I've done, whether that's tobacco or maternal child health and teens, is social support. Um, so social support networks and looking at the reasons um, why people in they use their social support or they don't use it. Because most of us have social support. We don't lean in and... Um, have those really hard conversations with our support people. And so we know that when people have an accountability person, partner, coach, trainer, whatever it is, that really supports them for the right reasons and not because, oh, they're telling them they need to do this, like their partner's like, you need to lose 20 pounds or else or whatever it is. It, we know that that doesn't help, but the real true support if a mom has support with breastfeeding, we know she's going to succeed longer at breastfeeding that newborn baby. If we know that someone who's trying to quit smoking has people that are supporting them in that and not enticing them and encouraging them and taking them to all the places that are going to remind them, yeah, it'd be really fun to smoke right now. Mm -hmm. 
they're going to probably have a better outcome with that behavior. So I think the two things I, w- I usually always hit on with patients, clients, and with teaching my students is understanding the why, getting to the root of it, and then having them really identify key people and then leaning in and being really vulnerable and with their support network and asking them to kind of keep them accountable. Hmm. That's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to eat kale, but uh, <laughs> but good try. Good try. I, yeah. I heard you slip that, that in that there on me, yeah. but, but uh, yeah, everything else sounds fantastic. Um, that, that's very valuable information, and um, I, I thank you very much for joining me today. Absolutely. It was a great talk. Absolutely. And thank you listeners for being such wonderful, curious people, and we'll talk with you next week. Next week on the Here We Are podcast, another UWL professor, Ryan McKelly, talking about masculinity. Masculine man. Talking about uh, something I've, I've spent so much of my life thinking about. What is a man? What is a man supposed to be? How is a man supposed to behave? All these things that that uh, every guy goes through in the in those formative years especially and uh, really throughout a lifetime and uh, it's something that uh, you know I've spent a lot of time we've talked about it on this podcast early on and in my development uh, going back and forth with the kind of the type of person that I thought I was supposed to be important stuff a lot of uh, a lot of uh, questions that that especially young men have about uh, just how we're supposed to behave and that sort of thing. Really cool episode coming to you next week. Make sure and go to the herewearepodcast.com website. Check it out. Uh, Check out past episodes. Subscribe. um, uh, Write reviews. Anything you can do to help is really cool. Uh, The psychonautics.com a documentary is coming out you can go to psychonauticsfilm.com you can pre-order it's available uh, for pre-orders right now in DVD and Blu-ray and you're like DVD and Blu-ray I some, some of you guys are like great I still I do the red box thing I still get DVDs and Blu-rays so I'm on board with that the digital download will be available in um in a few the pre-order for the digital download will be available in a few weeks and march 5th is the actual release but the more pre-orders that we get the more that'll bump it up in the in the um itunes and the amazon rating and all of that so if you want to if you want to help out and support uh what i do or at least that aspect of what i do that would be a fantastic way to do it if you do end up going the dvd or blu-ray route bring it to a show sometime and i'll sign it for you you can go to uh check out shanemoss.com to figure out when the shows are going to be we got stand-up science coming through uh at the time you're listening to this may or may not have already done madison wisconsin then milwaukee des moines iowa iowa city minneapolis and then uh for uh heading to the east coast for new york washington scranton pennsylvania was just added very recently providence rhode island boston newmarket new hampshire portland maine 
uh, Harrisburg, Virginia, Richmond, Virginia, and then in March, Norfolk, Virginia, Raleigh, North Carolina, Greensboro, Charlotte, Asheville, Oak Ridge, Tennessee, Nashville, Tennessee. We're adding uh, some more dates around that region. Those aren't all locked in. Um, uh, that we're, we're still figuring figuring that out a little bit. Um, I believe Charleston is locked up. It's just not on the site yet. Then popping through Boulder, Colorado, Denver, Colorado, adding adding potentially one or two more Colorado dates. Then in uh, April, another thing that isn't on the site, adding uh, some Northwest dates again. Uh, a full week in at least early May in uh, in Seattle. And then lining up some Portland dates, hoping for some other stuff around Oregon area as well. Just adding more dates all the time. After that, I, I think I'm going to try to head uh, south for May. Um, it, we're, we're deciding whether we're going to we're going to bring the tour back through the, uh, the the some of the cities in the Midwest where it did really well, or if we're going to head south and do new cities. That's a that's a debate that we're having right now. But um, it, yeah, check all of that out. If uh, if you know anyone in any of those areas that you think would enjoy the show stand up science half science half comedy in the same show two scientists two comedians on the same stage doing uh scientists giving talks comedians doing some of their more cerebral stuff and then ending it all with a q a with the audience so please check that out that's what's paying the bills these days and it's the most fun project that i've ever done stand up science people have absolutely loved it it's been a hit so thank you today's outro music brought to you by the multiple cat and if you want to check out more great indie music check out the jimmy pro indie music podcast it's fantastic those of you that listen all the way to the end you are of course my favorite
It hadn't happened